According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. We can go ahead and kill the heat while we're at it. Can't we? We we took the edge off. It says 75 degrees. All right. Proverbs chapter 8. We are tying together the last of these details here um, in verses 12 through 21 and dealing with kings reigning um, by wisdom and uh, do they reign by uh, uh, wisdom personified or do they reign by the concept of wisdom? Do they reign by... Uh, divine viewpoint perspective, we might say? Do they reign by the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ? How do we take this passage? And do we take this passage as a temporal passage or an eternal passage? Are we only talking about how things unfold in time? Uh, And so we should just totally saturate ourselves with a political mindset and read this chapter in a political view, like, uh, you know, we're tracking New Hampshire primaries or something on, on Fox News. Or do we look at this on an eternal scope and understand who the kings of this world really are or who they will be in the resurrection as, in fact, the inheritances are bestowed? And so I think we want to consider this passage really uh, in two ways. And we want to do so really in parallel at the same time, looking at uh, both in an earthly sense and in a heavenly sense, in a temporal way and in an um, eternal way. And that's what uh, I want to get back to here this morning, and if we do w- real well with it, then uh, we'll be ready to move on to um, the uh, glorious passage in verses 22 and following that discuss the begetting of the humanity of Jesus Christ, as the Lord begat me or possessed me at the beginning of His way before the works of old. And we'll discuss the childbirth, the language of childbirth that's used uh, repeatedly in uh, in these verses from 22 down through 31. All right, so that's where we are. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer to ask God the Father to bless our time in His Word. Shall we pray? Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your truth, rejoicing, Father, in your good pleasure in all that you provide for us. We call upon your faithfulness to, uh, to bless this Word, that it will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Might we have ears to hear eyes to see and a heart to understand. Humble us under the authority of your word, Father. I do thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are dealing with wisdom and viewing this as a personified woman in Proverbs chapter 8 as a sharp contrast with the cunning woman of chapter 7 and went through those issues in verses 1 through 11. That's the opening paragraph of this chapter. Uh, This is the right kind of woman you want to embrace, not the wrong kind of woman that chapter 7 is dealing with. All right, so that's the introduction to the chapter, dealing with personified wisdom. We had an A, a B, and a C there. I'm going to just skip through those. Secondly, wisdom speaks in the first person as to her associations and her disassociations. Who does she surround herself by and who does she want nothing to do with? And it is a love-hate dichotomy in verses 12 through 21. It is a love-hate dichotomy 
as we uh, deal with it there. Now, in this, we're currently in the midst of the subpoints. Wisdom actively dwells with those who actively dwell in the Word of God. All right, and this is the fellowship basis of it. Thank you. I know you asked me earlier and I was wrong. <laughs> no, no, no. You asked me earlier and I said, oh, I got plenty of coffee. And then I found out I don't. I wasn't lying. I was, I was just wrong. I'm wrong a lot. All right. Wisdom actively dwells with those who actively dwell in the word of God. And this is the reciprocal nature of dwelling and the aspect of our fellowship as we abide in the word of God. And the blessings we have as we abide in the word, the word abides in us. As we occupy with Christ, Christ occupies or abides with us. And so we have dwell, abide, occupy. We have these English terms that express what the scripture describes as where our thinking is, where our mind dwells, where we allow our thinking to center. If you keep your one track mind on the right track, that's a good thing. All right. And but if you get your one track mind on the wrong track, that's uh, that's deadly. So look out for that. The fear of the Lord hates evil. And we discussed the, the relationship there that if you don't hate what God hates, then you don't fear the Lord the way that you should fear the Lord that uh, the fear of the Lord will produce that uh, sanctified hatred, which is not the opposite of love. It is a love application in itself. Let love be without hypocrisy. Cling to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. All right, so if you don't hate the evil, then you have a hypocritical love. Uh, you've probably swallowed the elemental things of this world that tells you that, uh, that hate is bad and that God loves everybody and we have to approve everybody for all the vile, disgusting things they do. Uh, no, that is not biblical. We do hate because God hates. And hate is not the opposite of love. Hate is, hate is the unhypocritical love that has the appropriate object for its expression. And so uh, your hate lessons are there in uh, the fear of the Lord verses from Proverbs 8.13 to Proverbs 16.6 to Psalm 45.7, Psalm 97.10, as well as Jude verse uh, 23. Thirdly, the Word of God is alive and powerful. That's where we spent our time last week uh, detailing this. The Word of God is alive and powerful, as we see in verse 14. Uh, Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding power is mine. Power is mine. And I hope it doesn't come across uh, weird or different that we go from counsel to sound wisdom to understanding to power. I mean, it almost seems like three of those are all in the same realm. And then power, we kind of think as an odd duck, right? Why, is, why do we have counsel, sound wisdom, understanding, and then power? right? And it's really not an odd duck. When you, when you think about it, when you put it all together, of course it's powerful because look what it is. Look what it does. Look how eternal it is. Look how effective it is in any event. I, some people view that verse in a, in a troubling way and I don't have any trouble with it at all. I like having the word of God alive and powerful. I'm thankful that the word of God is powerful and it's inside of me and it springs forth and it hits me upside the head as much as it wants to. And it's powerful enough to do that. And it pierces to that dividing asunder of soul and spirit. It is alive and powerful. It does what it's designed to do. Understand, it will not return void. It will accomplish. It's doing something. It will accomplish. Not I will accomplish with the word. The word itself will accomplish. 
what it was sent to do. You understand? It's an active agent that does things. Important, I think, that we don't lose sight of that. All right, now that gets us to today's material. Temporal intimacy with the Word results in eternal reward. It is the nature of occupying with the Word of God here in time so that we reap the eternal rewards that come as a consequence of the Word doing its work. All right? And so in verses 15 through 21, we have a view to eternity. A view to eternity. And that's what I want to stress here this morning. Obviously, Matthew 6, the contrast there between time and eternity. Where are we laying up our treasures? What is it that we are storing for? We're storing for eternity. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. I'll grab this just quickly. I don't think we need to dwell on it. We taught it already in the Life of Christ series. And in some ways, it's so self-evident, it teaches itself. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we have the perspective of what is it that we have the priority for? What is it that that holds our affection? Where is our heart, the center and the core of our being? It better be heavenly. If it's all wrapped up in the things of this earth and we're so bound by our heart in earthly things, we're going to struggle to think about heavenly things, except every so often, right? It should be the other way around. We're so absorbed in heavenly things, our attention is focused on the things above that we occasionally have to break away and remember, oh yeah, um, I I haven't eaten yet today, right? Or something earthly or something. That's how the, the perspective ought to come, that we're so focused on the heavenly that earth is is that secondary Uh, affection back to proverbs 8 then by me kings reign and rulers decree justice by me princes rule and nobles all who judge rightly i love those who love me and those who diligently seek me will find me riches and honor are with me enduring wealth and righteousness oh boy and we start rubbing our hands we start getting greedy we start thinking yeah this is it we just got to memorize Proverbs and we're going to be, you know, Bill Gates. And we're going to just start raking in the billions. Wait a minute. Okay, slow down. This is not a prosperity theology message. <laughs> we're not a prosperity theology church. Notice what kind of wealth is here. The enduring wealth. That's not uh, U.S. dollar, okay? U.S. dollar is not enduring. It's depreciating. It's deflating. It's devalued. It's, it's, uh, it's a fiction anyway. Uh, But this is enduring wealth and righteousness. And notice where it is. It's with God. It's with God. So if you want to access that wealth, where do you need to be? You need to be with God. All right? If you want to access the heavenly economy, you need to be heavenly minded. If you want to participate in the heavenly economy, you need to be heavenly minded. Because you understand it's not just deposit only. I think all too often... Uh, because of that Matthew passage, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, that biblical economics, heavenly economics, is taught as a deposit-only uh, uh, activity. Where it's just always deposit, 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 and we're not going to see it again until we get to heaven after physical death. But in Revelation, Jesus says, I advise you to buy from me. And there's a purchase that's made. We draw on those deposits. We draw on, the, on those accounts. And it's more than just our deposits we're drawing from because we're, we're depositing into a joint account. All right? We have the wealth of Jesus Christ available to us. 
So there's much more than just deposit. It's not a deposit-only circumstance, all right? Because we're to make purchases in the heavenly economy as well, to buy the garments, to buy the ISAF, to buy the things that we're told to buy. We can even buy gold, all right, in in the uh, heavenly economy there. And that's, all right, just one quick side trip on this. Revelation 3, this is the, the church that thought they had everything, this is the uh, first self-righteous church of 21st century America, otherwise known as Laodicea. Okay. And they think they've just got everything great. I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were hot or cold. They were boasting over their not hot, not cold approach. You know, this is, this is a church that wants to avoid extremes. Because all extremes are bad. Go extreme this way, go extreme that way. We're not going to be extreme. God says, I wish you were. This lukewarm approach is getting you nowhere. You should be hot, you should be cold. Hot things should be hot, cold things should be cold. You make everything lukewarm and it's all nasty. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, see, and here's the the mental attitude that explains what the lukewarm Uh, metaphor is about because you say i am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and they were confusing temporal life prosperity with spiritual life prosperity they thought because hey the parking lot's full the grace box is overflowing we're rolling in the bucks things are great well yeah satan knows how to throw bucks at at places that uh that gets them detracted or distracted all right Because you say I'm rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Okay? Maybe I'll use that verse. That's going to be my... I'm still looking for better verses to use when people ask that dreaded how are you question. Say, well, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Thanks for asking. Okay? Actually, I'm not, but but this church was. But now notice, I advise you I advise you. That's kind of an interesting expression. I advise you. Okay. Buy from me. Oh, no, wait a minute. I can participate in the heavenly marketplace. I am supposed to be a... uh, I have have purchasing privileges in heaven. That's amazing. You know, I mean, there's some places like... uh, Sam's. I can't go into Sam's. I don't have a membership card for Sam's. Sharon has a membership card for Sam's, so she's she's worthy. She goes in there, and, and but I'm not worthy. I, I don't. I'm not, I have no standing at Sam's Club. Okay. Occasionally, I mean, she made me pump gas yesterday and made me use her card to do it, but uh, I don't have purchasing privileges at Sam's. Here's some purchasing privileges we have, and it's in heaven. Why do we have purchasing privileges in heaven? Well, you got anything on deposit up there? So I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Now, you can buy gold on earth. And when you buy gold on earth, um, you're going to be exchanging dollars for it and something that's of equivalent value. And somebody will tell you what it's worth and the price per ounce and things like that. But when we're buying gold from God, what are we paying? What are we paying? See, goes back to that old joke about who's buying and who's paying, okay? Um, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire. And who paid the price? 
so that you may become rich. You may become rich. Now, can you get rich buying gold on this earth? It kind of depends. How much did you spend to buy that gold, right? You know, if you spend $1,000 to buy gold, does that make you rich? Well, you're already out 1000 bucks up front. And so essentially the day you walk out, you have what you had when you walked in, and it just depends on what direction the gold goes. You know, you come back uh, in a year and the gold is lower, then you didn't become rich, did you? Because you exchanged the cash for the, for, the, uh, for the gold. But here, when we buy gold from God, it's refined by fire, God's done the refining, that you may become rich. And what are we paying to receive this gold? And white garments so that you may clothe yourself. You want to remedy your nakedness? You've got to purchase the garments from God. You can purchase the garments like you purchased the gold. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And the ISAV, are you blind? You need to deal with that blindness? You need to purchase the ISAV. How do I purchase the, the ISAV? What's going to remedy my blindness? So that you may see. And those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Well, there you go. It's not just deposits. That's my side trip. It's not just deposits. We are active participants in the heavenly marketplace right here, right now. That's better than the Sam's card, right? You get to go to heaven today, economically, spiritually, to participate, buy the clothes you need, buy the gold you need, buy the ISAV you need. Everything you need, God will provide. And we get to go make those purchases. All right. You know, it's like handing your daughter a credit card. (laughs) Oh, boy, right? She gets to go and she can make all kinds of purchases. But who's paying? All right. And then, obviously, when you don't make your Heavenly Father all mad when you're buying in the right stores, when you're in the right place where you are. Okay. Anyway. Let's look at this, these verses now. By me, kings reign. And we want to look at it in a couple of different ways. Okay. Because there is a temporal way to look at this. And if we limit ourselves to that, I think we're in trouble. Temporally, on earth, the wisdom of God maintains a sovereign rule through human kings. Temporally, on earth, the wisdom of God maintains a sovereign rule through human kings. And so when we think of it this way, by me, kings reign. That doesn't mean that every king in the world uses divine viewpoint. Because that's easy enough to disprove. <laughs> okay? I can point to a lot of earthly rulers that aren't using God's wisdom in their governance. But is that what this passage is saying? By me, kings reign. And we understand that Jesus Christ himself personally controls history. We understand that there's no king that reigns apart from Jesus Christ permitting him to reign. Every king that's in office is there because Jesus Christ put him there. And that includes even those that are presidents rather than kings and that are voted on rather than uh, other ways that kings become kings. Okay? There is no authority other than the authority that God puts where God wants them. And this is the principle here. I hope we're, we're solid on this. Daniel 2 and verse 21. And so by me, this is instrumental. This is... Um, This is in terms of the sovereign delegated authority by my permission, by my sovereign control of human history. 
kings reign and rulers decree justice. And then we're only looking at it temporally. We'll look at it eternally here in a moment. But Daniel 2.21. This was the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of this great big statue. And, and Nebuchadnezzar is given a vision that outlines all of uh, Gentile dominion over the uh, vacated throne of David. And God, in, in disciplining the Jewish people, um, sovereignly directed that the Gentiles would come and, and destroy the temple and vacate the throne of David and level the city of Jerusalem and carry the Jews off into captivity. And he decreed that. And the Jews went into captivity. But God still has a sovereign plan for Israel. They will be restored. And in the meantime, he has a plan that goes from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome to Antichrist that will be done away with when Jesus Christ returns at his second advent. And when the kingdom of God on earth fills the earth, then uh, Gentiles will never again have dominion over the Jewish people. And so this statue is describing Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, including eschatological Rome, with Antichrist, the ten toes of the statue, the ten horns of the beast. We have every bit of Gentile history from the point when David's throne was vacated in 586 B.C. to the point where David's throne is reseated in the millennium. All right, a second advent of Jesus Christ. So the whole swath of Gentile history from... Um, uh, Zedekiah to Jesus, to King uh, Emmanuel on his throne, is, uh, is in this statue right here. And the purpose for this, it says, um, Daniel 2.20, Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. There's, notice that tandem again? Wisdom and power. It is he who... God or wisdom and power? <laughs> All right. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. And so here we understand this is the role of God in controlling human history, in lifting up kings and removing kings. God's in charge of that. So when it says, by me kings reign... We understand that it's wisdom, it's God himself that puts a man on his throne or takes him off the throne, see, or a woman on her throne, if there's a queen, <laughs> all right? God does this. Uh, over to chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn this. He could have learned it in chapter 2, should have learned it in chapter 2, but now he's going to learn it in chapter 4. Now that he's saved, he's going to learn it. And now he's going to learn it under discipline. And uh, part of the discipline is he's going to have the mind of an animal until he learns this doctrine. You will be driven away from mankind. This is Daniel 4.25. You will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. And you will be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until... Notice, it's divine discipline and it's instructive. God teaches his children. Until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. If you are a king and you are in office, it's because God put you there. 
Don't boast in yourself. That's what he was doing here. He was walking around on his roof, bragging about himself and thinking, I'm great. You know, look at this kingdom I have built and all these great things I have done. Okay. So um, this is what happens. Now, in verse 25, it's the threat saying, humble yourself, adjust your thinking, repent. So here's Daniel's advice in verse 27. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Don't blow the prosperity test. Humble yourself. Accept that you're king by the grace of God. Exercise your dominion in that grace. Rule graciously and be generous and ready to share. He has made you wealthy for a purpose that you can reflect his wealth in your graciousness. Well, all this happened in Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. See that there? And I, I, I joke about it a lot, but it just bugs me, these kings on their roof, like David and getting, gets into trouble there, and Nebuchadnezzar gets in trouble here. And the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built? Oh, you did, did you? God put you here. When you start thinking, I myself have built it, you know, a pastor gets proud of how big the, the membership list is or how nice the building is or whatever. And he starts thinking about this great empire that he's building, the books that he's written, the radio broadcasts he's doing or whatever else, conferences he speaks at, different things. No. Which I have myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power for the glory of my majesty. Not only did I did it, do it, but I did it with my might and for my glory, for my majesty, right? So to me be the glory, great things I have done. And while the word was in the king's mouth, he can't even finish boasting his boast. It's still coming out. The vocal cords are still vibrating is when God shouts out here with the, uh, I told you so. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it has been declared. Sovereignty has been removed from you. See, God made you king. God can take you, take away your king. God gives, God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so, immediately, verse 33, the word considering concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind, began eating grass like cattle. Notice, there's a sphere of humanity and there's a sphere of animality. Okay? Man, animals. Men have fellowship with men. I know, I'm terrible. Sorry, sorry, sorry. All right. Driven away from the realm of mankind. And he can eat with the cattle in the backyard. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers, his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. My reason returned to me. And that's the point. The fellowship that we have with our fellow men and with God himself is a rational fellowship. It is with reason, it is with our faculties, it is with our mind. My reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised Him and honored Him who lives forever for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. What a king, right? Even the greatest human king that ever walked this earth still died and somebody else got his kingdom. But God is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing 
He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? (laughs) Isn't that great? The conclusion of this chapter, he is able, his works are true, his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. It's a beautiful thing. But in verse 25 and verse 32, it's stated twice. The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes That's what it says when it says in Proverbs 8, by me, kings rule. It is by God's sovereignty, the wisdom of God, that he puts the kings in office that he wants there and he takes them out when he's done with them. Same thing in Daniel 5. It's a generation later. There's a younger king, a knucklehead unbeliever named Belteshazzar. I'm sorry, Belshazzar. Belteshazzar is Daniel in his Babylonian name. Belshazzar is this king who dies at the end of chapter 5. And he uh, should have learned this lesson. So So Daniel illustrates with the example of Nebuchadnezzar. And you see that there in verses basically 18 and following. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. God did that. And because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. There's a reason why you honor the king. You honor the king not because you're afraid of him, but because you fear the Lord. Uh, Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive. That's the power of the state because the sword is given to the king. The state does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a servant of God. Matters of life and death are left to the government. They're not left to families. They're not left to marriages. They're not left to uh, individuals to decide that somebody just needs to die. All right? If that's the case, you've got chaos in the land. You need the um, monopoly on violence to be within within the realm of government, not within the realm of families. Hatfields and McCoys waging war with one another or clan tribal warfare like in the Arab world. It's not in families, it's not in marriage, it's not in individuals other than self-defense. The sword on a judicial basis is given to government. So whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished, he spared alive. Whomever he wished, he elevated. Whomever he wished, he humbled. So he becomes a reflection of God's own sovereignty. That's the nature of it. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, Well then, clearly he becomes a tyrant that's not worthy of the government and it's the right of the people to kill him. Oh no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't say that. It says he's still in the hands of God. He's still in the hands of God. See, David would not lift a hand against Saul even though he knew that Saul was wicked and that God was going to remove Saul. And David just kept his eyes on the Lord and waited until God removed Saul. All right, when his heart was lifted up, his spirit became proud. He behaved arrogantly. He was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. God did that. And God is free to do that when he chooses. And God is free to not do that when he chooses. If he wants to leave an arrogant tyrant in place, he's got reasons for doing that. And he will leave an arrogant tyrant in place for a long, long time sometimes to teach his children what they need to learn to discipline a nation 
All right, so he was driven away from mankind. His heart was made like the heart of a beast and so forth. But then he woke up and he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind, that he sets over it whomever he wishes. God is sovereign. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, has not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. He was fully aware of uh, the history there with Nebuchadnezzar, yet he did not humble himself. He became even more boastful than Nebuchadnezzar ever was. Isn't that sad? Even in human terms, Belshazzar had nothing to boast in that even came close to Nebuchadnezzar's glory, but he boasted more than Nebuchadnezzar ever boasted. Isn't that insane? Acts chapter 17. Let's look at some New Testament passages here. Acts chapter 17. We'll bring our own uh, illustrations here. Take it into the New Testament, put it into a church age context. Acts 17 and Romans 13, 1. But starting in Acts 17 and verse 26, here's Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. He's in Athens, in the Areopagus. He says, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with its inscription to an unknown God. Okay? And that's how religious they are. They're so religious, they want to make sure they didn't lose anybody or miss anybody. Or, you know, um, they, had, they had altars to every God they knew about, plus an extra altar to a particular God maybe they, they didn't know about. Him. <laughs> Just in case. He says, let me tell you about this God you don't know. What you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And I love the idea of ignorance. Sunday night, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, Lewis was talking about agnoia, the Greek vocabulary agnoia, which is ignorance. It's also where we get the term agnostic. I love that because I meet a lot of agnostics. And, and, and they're really atheists, but they don't want to say they're atheists, so they say, well, I'm agnostic. And that gives them some kind of veneer of objectivity because they say they have an open mind, and really they just have an empty mind. Agnoia means ignorant. Someone who says they're agnostic say, I'm sorry, you're ignorant. I can fix ignorance. Let me provide the information whereby you may know. And that's what Paul's doing here. He says, let me tell you about this God you do not know. He's nearby. He's knowable. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. Keep that in mind. We're going to get back to that here in Proverbs 8. Is the Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. We're not doing anything. Religion tries to do things for their God, to honor them, to make them happy, to placate them, all right, to feed their priests and whatever else. God doesn't need anything we can give him. Whatever I give him, he doesn't need. But my free will offerings he wants, and he's delighted when I give him what he wants. But he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, this is his sovereignty at work, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Their appointed times. When a nation rises and when a nation falls, that's in God's sovereign hands. And the boundaries of their habitation. They tend to start small, they tend to expand, they tend to collapse, they tend to go away. And God's in charge of all of that. 
you know, six flags over Texas, all, every flag because the sovereignty of God changed what he wanted to have as a flag over this land. We pledge allegiance to this flag, but when he removes it, God removes it. Their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So by me, kings reign. I am the one that changes the, the epics and the times. Notice, though, that they would seek God. One of the main considerations for what God employs in his decision-making process is this a land where seeking of God is possible? Is this a land with the light of the gospel? Is this a land with Bible teaching? A land with Bible teaching and the gospel that's preached, in other words, a land of freedom, is a land that God will bless and prolong in the keeping of that land. The purpose clause here is that they would seek God. If a land, uh, you know, think of communist, uh, think of the Soviet Union, where the gospel was stamped, where uh, freedom was not there, where uh, uh, the knowledge of God had to keep be kept underground, it was hidden away. Yeah, God brought that to an end, didn't he? And then God will bring us to an end too when we stop preaching the gospel. When churches get busy doing social work instead of eternal gospel preaching. That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. He is nearby and he is knowable. And so long as we continue to be a land. That's why, by the way, in, in Timothy, why do we pray for our leaders? So that we can live a quiet life in godliness and dignity. We want political leaders in office that will preserve our freedoms to teach the word of God, to give the gospel. And if we've got those freedoms, we've got those freedoms. Whether or not we keep a capitalistic economy or go to a socialistic economy or go to a communistic economy or whatever else it is, if we are free to assemble and teach the word of God and if we are free to, to, to preach the gospel, that's what we're to pray for in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And that's what... Uh, the purpose is here, that they would seek God or perhaps they might grope for him and find him. All right. Romans 13, 1. Romans 13, 1. We taught this in our Roman series. So if you want more detail on it, it's available. Every person... I'm looking for footnotes, <laughs> parentheses, exceptions, fine print, lawyer language, Greek, Hebrew, anything. I'm not finding any exceptions, okay? It's every person. Is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, all right? And, and that's an absolute statement. There will be statements that follow, but those statements that follow don't contradict the opening statement. They may illustrate, they may expand, they may um, provide additional information, but they cannot contradict the opening absolute statement that is be in, be in subjection. Be in subjection under the governing authorities. All right? So that means if you're a child, you're in subjection to your parents. If you're a wife, you're in subjection to your husband. If you're... Uh, a person, you're in subjection to the governing authorities of the land in which you are. 
For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. By me, kings reign. All right. So that means we have the president we have, we have the governor we have, we have the mayor we have, we have the county commissioners we have, we have the uh, precinct uh, chairperson we have. Why? Because we put them there? God put them there. That's right. And, and we get sidetracked, and I tell you, particularly in a representative republic whereby uh, you know, we, our governing authority is a written constitution, and whereby under that governing authority we have appointed representatives, we tend to think that, well, this is, this is what we've done. And when we say that, we're Nebuchadnezzar on the roof. Look at what we've done. Okay? And uh, we're very happy when look at what we've done is the, the candidate we like. <laughs> and we're really happy if the candidate we like uh, wins. And we, we can joyfully say, look what we've done. Okay? But when the candidate we don't like wins, when the candidate we despise wins, when the candidate that is openly serving Satan and hostile to the Jewish people wins, what do we do? We say, oh, well, look what we've done. <laughs> no, God has done. What in the world is God doing? Because there is no authority except for those that have been established by God. If they're in office, God put them there. There is nobody that somehow snuck into office without God noticing and God's up there in heaven going, oh, how'd they get in there? Oh my goodness, look at that. Will you look at who the, look at who the governor of Texas is? How did that happen? Okay. It's all in the sovereignty of God, every step of the way. All right? Now, it does go on to say, and notice, again, it's absolute, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. You realize that? Defiance in terms of non-subjection insubordination is a rejection of God himself. Like when they grumbled against Moses, he said, they haven't grumbled against Moses, they've grumbled against me. Okay? If you are in... I'm not, I'm not talking about disobedience. You can still disobey a, a, a sinful law or a sinful command, but in your disobedience, you remain in subjection. And we taught that in Romans 13, and people didn't hear it and got all mad. Subjection is not a pure synonym for obedience. You can disobey a law. As Peter and John disobeyed the law, but they remained in subjection. And so they went to jail. They remained in subjection. See? They did not take up swords and execute the Sanhedrin. They did not throw down the authority that was over them. They disobeyed because they were told to quit preaching Jesus. They kept preaching Jesus. So they disobeyed, but they remained in subjection. Likewise, too, with us today and our unjust laws and our evil rulers and told to do different things and, and, uh, and that, well, we must choose whether to obey God or man. Well, ideally, we want to obey both. We're commanded to render unto Caesar what is Caesar, to render unto God what is God's. 
we should obey both. But when Caesar is telling us to do something that God tells us not to do, we can't obey both. So what do we do? We obey God rather than man. But we stay in subjection even, even through even through obeying God rather than man. In our disobedience to man, we remain in subjection because those are the authorities that are over us. We remain subject to it. That's why I think a lot of these militia groups get off track. You can disobey, but remain in subjection. And don't put yourself up as an as a alternative authority. Because those that exist, exist from God. Now, if you resist, you will, if you oppose, you will oppose God himself. Then, in the verses that follow, they show the purpose for government. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil and, and so forth. And it talks about the ideal purpose of government. Obviously, not every government lives up to that ideal. But it doesn't change the necessity of the imperatives in verses 1 and 2. In other words, the the further explanation in verses 3 through uh, 5 does not change the imperative of verses 1 and 2. does not change the fact that... See, some people want to rewrite verse 1 to say, be in subjection to the godly authority and don't be in subjection to the godless authority. That you, that you only have to be in subjection to authority that is patterned after biblical principles, and you can be completely defiant of authority that is defying biblical principles. And that is a rewrite from verse 1 that we're not entitled to do. The, the only adjective that defines authority in verse 1 is the governing authority. Is it governing? Be in subjection. Be in subjection. Now, if it's not governing, then it's not governing, and there's nothing to be in subjection to, okay? If you're in a failed state, if you're in a, in a, in a lawless um, uh, uh, territory, a lot of failed states around the world, uh, if there's no governance, there's no governance. But if there is governance, you're in subjection, and that's the point. All right, so that's temporally on earth. Are we clear on that? Temporally on earth. When I read, by me kings reign and rulers decree justice, by me princes rule and nobles, all who judge rightly, by me kings reign, I can look at this passage on a temporal basis and agree and say, yes, the word of God is unanimous. God puts people in office. By me kings reign. And those that are there, he puts there. And those that he removes, he removes. All right. I get that on the temporal level. Now I want to go back and I want to look at it on an eternal basis. I want to start to look at who the kings really are and how they're going to reign when the kingdom of God is on this earth. All right? And that is the second way we're going to look at this. Eternally. The wisdom of God will bestow wealth and authority to resurrected rulers eternally, not temporally, eternally. The wisdom of God will bestow wealth and authority to resurrected rulers. And we can view Proverbs 8 in this way as well. What is going to be the criteria for the resurrected kings who reign 
Is he going to pick the biggest losers and say, all right, you get to be king? He's going to take those that are powerful in the scriptures. He's going to take those that are rewarded. And uh, we can take a look at some of these here as well. And I think the key in these verses, as I look at this, I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. This is talking about the intimacy we have with the Word of God and a reward that's bestowed. And this is more than just simply the unconditional love of God that so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. But this is talking about the rapport love of the Father with a believer with capacity for fellowship. The rapport love of the, if this was, you know, if I was in charge of translating this into Septuagint Greek, I would be using phileo here rather than uh, agapao. See, and I don't know, I haven't looked up what the Septuagint did with this. But I love those who love me. That's reciprocal. That's rapport. That's fellowship. That's not the unconditional love of, of agape. Okay. And we know that. We know the difference between agape love and philos love and the issues there. I don't know what the Septuagint did here. I'll look it up after class. Um, But notice now, riches and honor are with me. So we're talking about a reward that has to be granted or that will be granted once we are with God, once we are resurrected, once we stand before him and receive what it is he has to bestow. Enduring wealth, not just the passing wealth, not the, not the uh, uh, perishable things like earthly silver and gold. Okay, Enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even pure gold. My yield, now notice, fruit and yield, what do those both require? They both require time. They both require uh, maturity. They both require, for fruit, it requires the appropriate time for it to grow and be harvested. And uh, for yield, that doesn't just happen overnight. The yield happens when the uh, investment matures. That's the, that's the idea of a yield. This is, um, this, these are the principles of Scripture and the principles of wisdom in that we, uh, we're not just um, earning money, but we are actually accumulating wealth. And then we are actually uh, making the, the money that we earn productive so as to produce a yield. It's the nature of who God is and what He's designed us to do. And you'll notice, so we have the language of yield. We have the language of endow. Notice in verse 21. I don't want to skip verse 20. My yield is better than choice of silver. I walk in the way of righteousness. Now this is the walk that God does. You know, God is a walking God. Do you notice that? Jesus was a walker. Jesus taught as he walked. There's a peripatetic teaching ministry as Jesus walked with his disciples. He didn't just sit down in a classroom with them. He walked with them. They walked with him. And uh, they walked through life together. We walk with our spouse together. We learn in this walk of life. I walk in the way of righteousness. You know, what was the, the verse in Genesis? They heard the sound of the Lord God. He was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice. And so... To whatever extent we join him in his walk, <laughs> if we're yoked together with Jesus Christ, right? If we join him in his walk, 
what is the reward going to be? And for those that do their own thing or walk their own way or, you know, i got to be me, whatever, well, you will not be endowed. You obviously love yourself more than you love the Lord. To endow those who love me with wealth. Not just with riches, not just with plunder or wealth or money. Know the difference between money and wealth. To endow those who love me with wealth, that I may fill their treasuries. Think about all those deposits you've been making all these years. And what are the matching funds? What is it that God puts in there? See, what is it God puts in there? That I may fill their treasuries. So, Let's stop thinking of this now in temporal life and start thinking of this as the yield and the endowment and the reward and the eternal bestowment that we get in the resurrection. And let's see if uh, in looking at this passage in that way, if we have correspondence elsewhere. And I believe we do. Psalm 49, 14. Psalm 49, 14. And uh, you'll notice uh, in the early verses, uh, we've got uh, an income disparity, (laughs) right? Unequal distribution of wealth. It's not fair. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. Hear this, all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the harp. Why should I fear in the days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. And so in earthly terms, rich people can have a lot of faith in their, themselves, in their own wealth, in their own riches. And yet, on an eternal scale, what can they even accomplish? No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. If you want to try to buy your salvation, forget it. You can't afford it. You can't pay the price. The price is the infinite blood of Jesus Christ. For he sees that even wise men die, the stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Okay? So if there were really smart people that got rich and if there were really stupid people that that stayed poor, they're all going to die and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever, their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. You know, one way to live, one way to kind of create a quasi-eternality is to build a huge house for yourself, a house of, you know, the Habsburg dynasty or the, the house of Windsor or the, you know, uh, some great wealthy family that, that uh, can pass on their lineage, their name and their wealth for generations and generations and generations afterwards, okay? Well, that lasted until... Uh, Efforts were made to seize that and, and to, to, for government to seize all the institutional family wealth and uh, the different death taxes to keep that from happening. All right. 
Man and his pump will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. There is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words. Notice now, as sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Ooh, wait a minute. There is ruling in who gets to reign? Those that were wealthy on earth or those that were upright, those that were righteous. There is a resurrection of glory and the upright get to reign. And the, uh, of course, the unbelievers are resurrected to uh, death in the lake of fire. But the carnally minded believers that were earthly minded, that did not lay up treasures in heaven. You fool, today your soul will be with me in paradise, right? Or, or you fool, today your soul shall be required of you. They have, they've laid up nothing in heaven. They're going to be paupers in heaven. And who's going to be ruling over them? The upright, yeah. Those that walked his walk. Those that had the experiential righteousness, not the positional righteousness. We all have positional righteousness in Christ. But those that had the experiential justification, those that walked that upright walk, those that lived wisdom, they're going to rule. All right. God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased, for when he dies he will carry away nothing, and his glory will not descend after him. And while he lives, he congratulates himself. <laughs> All right. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. If you're wealthy and you don't have divine viewpoint for why God made you wealthy, you're no better than a dead dog, right? The beast that perishes. Ideally, there's nothing wrong with being rich. But understand it came from God. Walk with Him. Understand that He's using you. You're the tool in His hand. He's made you a king. He's made you wealthy. And there's a reason for why that, uh, he's, that you're the tool in His hand to bless others with that wealth. Anyway, Psalm 49 goes well with 1 Timothy 6 and other passages that describe the uh, gift of giving and the blessings of abundance and what, what it is that God does. All right, Luke. Oh, man. Luke and Revelation and Revelation, and I'm not going to do it in 45 seconds. All right, we'll pick up here next week. This, these are really just the final loose ends before we can get into um, the uh, birth of the humanity of Christ. So we'll see how long that takes us, and then we'll, uh, we'll get right into these, uh, these neat things on Today I Have Begotten Thee. Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Father, thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace, for all that you pour forth. Father, every good thing bestowed, every perfect gift comes down from you. And if there's something that we think we've achieved from ourselves or something we've, we've uh, sought other sources of provision for, like uh, that counterfeit, Father, we want none of it. We want only what you give. And we want to embrace it, to accept it, to enjoy it, to utilize it in a manner compatible with the grace that you've bestowed it. So, Father... Uh, work in this, open our eyes to these scriptures, make it real to each one of us. Help us to learn what it means when it says, by me kings reign. That is a true statement in time and it's a true statement in eternity. And I thank you, Father, that it's going to be us reigning with your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We suffer with him, we will reign with him. That is a promise, Father, and I thank you for it. In Jesus Christ's name I do pray. Amen.